Hello, everyone. It's time for another episode of The Jerry Wills Show, and we have a special guest for you for this show. His name is Michael Schratt. And I think you'll find that this is going to be one of those shows that you want to come back and visit a few times. Uh, Michael has spent a lot of time looking into the UFO phenomena. He is a private pilot and aviation historian. He's been investigating UFO encounters for over 28 years. That's a long time. Between 2008 and 2009, Michael meticulously reviewed a minimum of 50,000 cases, which were preserved at the CUFOS, which is the Center for UFO Studies. Those archives are in Chicago. In an effort to maintain an important part of our national history, Michael has recreated dozens of highly credible UFO cases by the use of drawings, illustrations, and commissioned artwork. Many of these include underwater submerged, or I'm sorry, unidentified submerged objects, USOs, actual extraterrestrial encounters, and prehistory UFO cases, which have never really seen the light of day. Michael has appeared on multiple media platforms, including the following, uh, Coast to Coast, AM, History Channel, Paranormal Matrix, UFO Hunters, Fade to Black, in addition, Michael has been a guest speaker at multiple UFO conferences, including the following, Phoenix MUFON, Orange County MUFON, International UFO Conference, and MUFON Symposium and UFOCon. So, you know, we've got someone here who has uh, a bit of background with all of this and has looked in it extensively. <clears throat> the idea of creating... Um, images based upon historical accounts is absolutely thrilling because typically it's just left up to us to figure out what it might have looked like and you know everyone's got their own perception but given the depth of information that uh, Michael possesses and through the research that he's done these images are really quite extraordinary so without any uh, delay Let's dive right into it, folks. Let's find out more that Michael has to tell us. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hi, Jerry. How are you? Good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. We we really sure. appreciate it. Mm -hmm. So, I'm curious, what got you started in doing this? I'm a concerned citizen. I'd like to know where my tax dollars are disappearing. So I started interviewing pilots, engineers, uh, going to air shows, looking at the, the best possible credible evidence. You talked about QFO Center for UFO Studies. That was 2457 West Peterson Avenue in Chicago area. And they did have 60,000 cases there. Uh, it took me a couple of years to go through the files, but I uh, was able to make it through. My criteria for taking a case on was it had to have a, a good drawing, a good sketch or an illustration, at least a three-page report, and then a flight path. It, if it satisfied that criteria, then I went ahead and copied it. And uh, at that point, I either did a full-color SOLIDWORKS drawing, AutoCAD line drawing, or commissioned the art from a, you know, basically a professional artist just to make these cases come alive. So that's what I've been doing I'd say the last 20 years, but more recently, what we'll be talking about today is I'd like to go through some of the most mission-critical cases within the Leonard Stringfield 
UFO crash retrieval cases because I think that is what is actually going to move this ball forward. Do you have a background in art or this this kind of rendering? No, I really don't. I really don't know. I can I can do some minor rendering and, and drawings and everything, but nothing on the level of what the people I'm working for. So I, I'm only as good as the people that I've, you know, I hired on to work for me on some of these things. So I always give them credit. I am nowhere near as, as good as they are. So that credit goes to the artists. Yeah, I know what that's like. I, I I've done something similar in the past, not about UFO cases. Um, <laughs> I, I was talking to Linda Moulton Howell about an event that took place for me uh, many, many years ago when I was just a teenager. And she said, well, can you can you draw what would it look like? And I, I swear, if there were a third grader, it probably would have looked about as good. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't anything to um, get excited about. But mm-hmm. I suppose it, it got the point across. Well, you know, tell us about this. Um, was it Leonard Stringfield you said? Sure, sure. Should we go ahead and uh, share screen here? Yeah, go right ahead. Okay. I'm going to share screen. Uh, it says, host disabled participant screen sharing. Okay. All Did right. I? Let's share here. Hmm. Share screen. Let's see. if uh, Do I have a control over that here? I think you may have control. All right, let's try that setting. Does that help? Okay, I'm going to go here. Yep. Okay. Let's see here. Share. Okay. So do you see this? Yeah, I see retrievals of the third kind. Okay, you got it. All right, so why don't we go here, and I'll... Okay, so hopefully you see this now. I do. Good, good. Okay. So uh, that's going to be the title of the discussion that we're going to have today here. And uh, I'm going to start over here. And this is basically, let's see if I can move this over here. That, that works good. Uh, UFO crash retrievals, the ultimate holy grail of ufology. So why is it called the ultimate holy grail of ufology? Uh, for three specific reasons. Number one, the UFO crash retrievals have the bodies. Number two, they have the debris. And number three, they have the craft. So they have everything wrapped up into one nice little package. And this is what it's going to take to move this field forward. We don't need any CE1 cases anymore. We, we don't need any CE2 cases anymore. We've been doing this for 75 years. It's now time to make a management decision on this and move this field forward. And the only way we're going to do it is with the physical evidence through the crash retrievals. A uh, couple of quick announcements here. We'll rip through these here. The content of each case highlighted in this presentation has remained intact for the description of the original source. Number two, the identity of first-hand sources will be protected per Leonard Stringfield's original agreement with his military contacts. Number three, the visual aids used in this presentation are computer-generated forensic composite illustrations and sketches which originated from the specific details provided by Leonard sources. And then this is the source material of where Leonard got his information. This is the caliber of witnesses that we're going to be dealing with here. Three-star U.S. Air Force generals, U.S. Air Force fighter pilots, astronauts, commercial pilots, air traffic controllers, neurosurgeons, pathologists, theoretical physicists and mathematicians, U.S. Army officers, U.S. Navy officers, Military police, 
high-level Pentagon officials, top military brass, scientists and engineers who worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and other government facilities. Uh, a couple of quick quotes here. Number one, since World War II, 50% of all documents created by the United States government have been classified top secret. Therefore, that means that we have essentially lost 50% of our national history. I thought that's very interesting. Number two, UFO crash retrievals can't be real because if they were, I would have read about it in the local newspaper. You won't read about these in the local newspaper because these are the crown jewels. These are the silver bullets. Uh, you know, we're talking about the, the heavy hitters here. Number three, don't believe anything until it's officially denied. And number four, there are not now, nor ever have been, any extraterrestrial visit, visitors or equipment on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So what we're going to do here is we're going to examine the evidence from the first-hand military witnesses who held the bodies, held the debris, transported the craft on 18-wheeler tractor trailers to Lowboy, and it's going to be their word against the government's word, and we're going to see if we can make a good case here. Uh, UFO crash retrieval expert Leonard Stringfield. This is the gentleman that we're talking about. This is our, our man right here. A couple of brief bios statements here. Leonard Stringfield was born in 1920. He grew up in Cincinnati. Number two, by the time he graduated from high school in 1939, he had already memorized the entire dictionary. Number three, he joined the military as soon as he heard about the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. After the war, he was employed by a chemical company in Ohio and retired after 30 years. He wrote two books, uh, one in 1957 and one in 1977 called The UFO Siege. And this is the point we want to talk about here. His lecture on UFO crash retrievals at the 1978 symposium in Dayton, Ohio, caused an international sensation. Absolutely, it did cause a sensation because this was the first time that the term UFO crash retrievals had really come forward within this field. He, he really coined the term UFO crash retrieval. Now, last one here, he passed away December 18, 1994. Uh, here's a newspaper clipping. This is Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, Inquirer, July 19, 1993. And here he says, quote, What I've collected has staggering implications for mankind, this would be the biggest thing since Christ, really. Author continues quest for truth about UFOs. And then this is very important because this is the compendium of all of his status reports into one document. UFO crash retrievals, the complete investigation by Leonard Stringfield, 1978 to 1994. So I just want to give you the source of where I'm getting the information. I'm just not making these cases up. Everything that we'll be talking about today has references and paperwork within this book right here. It, it, you can get it on Amazon. It's $78. It's not for the faint of heart. You have to be interested in this field to really dig into these cases. But everything that we'll be talking about today is referenced within this book here. So what I want to do now is I want to take you a secondary source of where I got this information, so that, just so that I can document the origin point of where all this came from. This is Lunkin Airport, Cincinnati, Ohio, and this is the location of the 65 three-ring binders that Leonard had within his office management location. And I'm going to take you inside the facility now, and we're walking in. Now you can see the file cabinets here, and I've laid a couple of these uh, 
briefing documents out. These are, I would say, a little bit larger than eight and a half by 11. There were 65 of them. And in 2013, MUFON governing body gave me access to all 65 three ring binders. Wow. And the treasure trove of information. These are the binders here. And it's like firsthand witnesses and contacts and testimony of people who are on these retrieval operations. It's it's the best information within ufology. No question about it. This is typically what they look like here. So it's just a matter of paging through. And when I was looking at these back in 2013, a strange phenomenon took place. And I haven't had this happen to me before or since. Hours literally passed like minutes when I was looking through these binders. It was the best information ever. A total highlight, an absolute highlight. All right, so here's what we want to break down here. Would you go to Las Vegas if you knew the odds were 119 to 1 in your favor? Okay, so we've got a, we've got 119 crash retrieval cases within the Springfield files that I've been able to identify. So if you took those odds and you went to Vegas and you went to a roulette re wheel and it had 120 spaces on it and you bet 119, you're going to win every time. You're going to win every single time and the odds are in your favor. We only need one of these cases to be real, and then the case for non-existence of UFO crash retrievals completely falls apart. So really, the odds are in our favor here. Uh, I want to give credit to my artist, Rudy Gardet. He's the one who did these pencil sketches here. And uh, what we can do here is I'm going to move forward into the actual crash retrievals, and this is where we want to start, right here, because I want to go right to Leonard Stringfield's cases. So this is UFO crash retrieval, 1942. Now, this took place at a army base north of Georgia. Even Leonard didn't know where this took place. Now, when this craft came down, this is page 319 in the book here. When this craft came down, it hit the side of the building, and it caused a hole breach on the side of the craft. This thing was about 15 feet in diameter, 10 feet high. It had three levels, so we'll break this down. Upper level had a display panel that had buttons and switches and dials and levers. And then below that was kind of an open area which marked the mid-level. And there were four bar stools with a wraparound window. There were at least two to three bodies recovered at the very least. And they were about, you can see here, about five feet tall, 90 pounds. Overset, oversized head, oversized eyes, slit for a mouth, minute nose, emaciated long arms that went down below the knees. Now, this lower level had an entryway hatch on it. So again, this is 1942. This is long before Roswell. So we're already we're already five years prior to Roswell here at this Army base north of Georgia. Wow. Okay, next one. This is Wright Field, Dayton, Ohio, 1946, and this is Space, the Final Frontier, page 59. That's the source for this particular case. Now, the witness on this one was a private, and he dealt with records management, and he was told to deliver a very, you could call it secret memo, at a particular hangar at Wright Field, Dayton, Ohio. It had not become Wright-Patterson Air Force Base until 1947. In 1946, it was still Wright Field, Dayton, Ohio. So uh, let's go to the front cover of this book, Space the Final Frontier, Secrets NASA Doesn't Want You to Know by Clark McClellan. So in this particular case, that's where this comes for. And when he walks into this hangar, he sees an MP who was a friend of his, 
And this MP said, you know what? I want to show you something. So he walks into the side of the hangar, and off to the hangar in the side corner area is this polished aluminum, 15-foot diameter by 7-foot tall, dish-shaped craft. It had these rectangular windows wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft. And this had arrived from Arkansas on a railroad boxcar, and it made it to Wrightfield, Dayton, Ohio, because all roads lead to Wrightfield, Dayton, Ohio. Off here you, to the right, you can see some of the scribbles here. No seams, no rivets, uh, no visible means of propulsion, no uh, display panels, no seats. There was a central column that was three feet in diameter that ran from the bottom of the craft up through the midpoint and then connecting to the top. So let's go to the AutoCAD drawing. This is my AutoCAD drawing that shows you what this craft looks like. In the upper right-hand corner, you can see my cutaway drawing that shows you that this interior of the craft was antiseptically sterile. There was no seats there whatsoever. Uh, we don't know if they ever got inside, but again, no rivets, no welds, no seams, no hatches. Now, if you look on the bottom view, you can see there's a red dot there. That red dot indicates the attempted point of entry. What they were trying to do is when this uh, courier guy who was a records management private, when he saw what was sitting before this craft on the hangar floor, there was a diamond tip drill bit connected to an uh, a electric drill. They were trying to breach not only the hull of the craft, but the window of the craft with this diamond tip drill bit, and they failed. I've got three separate cases now where the government is desperately trying to get into these craft and they can't do it. Uh, here's the Joseph Wright full color rendering, shows you what this craft looked like. Again, this is 1946, came in from a boxcar from uh, Arkansas. This was my first go around at trying to get this thing illustrated. And then we're gonna go ahead and do the sketch. So here's the pencil sketch of what this craft looks like from Rudy. You can see the electric drill with the drill bit. They had a tarp off to the right of the craft. They had these white lab coat technicians that were working on this thing. And then I want to move one forward and show you the full color rendering of what it may have looked like if you were there that day. Wow, again, that's amazing. Yep. Yeah, that's so that's that's the goal of what I've been involved in is is taking these cases from the eyewitness testimony and, and you can see where we started here with that first drawing. Very, very rough drawing and try to make these cases come alive to preserve an important part of our national history. So already we've got two cases prior to Roswell here. Now, next one, Wrightfield, Dayton, Ohio. This is 1946. The source is UFO crash retrievals, pages 242 to 243. Now, this one's interesting because the primary eyewitness was a six-year-old boy, and he was brought to Dayton, Ohio by his father, and his father was kind of this electrical technician. Now, he, he had access to restricted areas in the hangar. Now, I'm showing you hangar bay four here. This is bay E in the foreground. I don't know if it took place in this hangar, but I have a, a suspicion that it may have. So it's possible it could have been this hangar right here. So this father brings his son, six-year-old son, to the hangar. There's an adjoining cafeteria to this facility, and there was a janitor. We'll move forward here. There was a janitor that offered this six-year-old boy a Coke, and he, he went to his father and said, uh, is it okay if this guy gives me a, a, a Coke? And he said, yeah, it's okay. So this janitor buys this six-year-old boy a soda, 
And while all this is going on, you can see here, he, he's now got the soda in his hand. Somebody comes through this connecting doorway from the hangar into the cafeteria, and this young boy, he peeks inside, and he gets a, a sneak peek inside this hangar. And I'm going to show you what it looked like inside. Here's what he saw. You can see him in the foreground. And what he saw, and this is the, the first layout that we did by Rudy, what he saw is this dish-shaped craft propped up on tripod landing gear. There were two 18-wheeler tractor-trailer low-boy trucks that had various debris that were covered by tarps, and this is the first pass rough drawing. And then near the craft, there were a minimum of three bodies that were the same motif again, three and a half to four feet tall. They had oversized head, oversized eyes, emaciated long arms. You can see him in the background peeking through. So now what I want to do now is I want to take you to our final drawing by Rudy Gardea. And this is the final rendering here. So it just gives you an idea of what it may have looked like. Now, reverse image from the perspective of the boy looking in the background, we're kind of reversing the image so that you can see him peeking in the background. So this was 20 feet in diameter, tripod landing gear legs, and then uh, on the outer circumference, there was this band that wrapped around the outer circumference. That comes up a number of times as well. So the, the point I'm making here is when you have congressmen and senators and high-level political officials during these hearings, and, and they say that, you know, we, we don't have any evidence of this. We've not, we don't have any physical evidence of anything. That doesn't jive with what our witnesses are telling us. So that tells us two things. Either, number one, they're lying, or number two, they don't have access to the material, the evidence. They don't have a high enough security clearance. All right, next one. Uh, this is this is not too far from you, I, I think. Uh, Indian Reservation west of Globe and east of the mountain range. The mountain range there. This is January 1940, the Superstition Mountain Range. Mm -hmm. January 1947, uh, two men were on a Jeep, and they were looking for a particular part of landscape for something they were going to homestead as a building location. And again, this is west of Globe, Arizona. And they get to this particular location, and they're challenged by two MPs. Not 300 feet further down the road off to the left is this large disc-shaped craft, and augured in at about a 30-degree angle. It had a dome on top. There were two bands wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft, and between the bands were what looked like square windows wrapped around the outer circumference. So this is January 1947, page 93, case A-10. Uh, Roswell trip report here. I'm going to move forward because I want to get right back to the Springfield cases uh, so that we, we have enough time to get through the cases of Letter Springfield. This is sure. just kind of a, a tour of Roswell here, but I really want to get to the Stringfield cases because that's the most important thing. Now, White Sands Missile Range, July 4th, 1947, and this is UFO Crash Retrievals, page 196 by Leonard Stringfield. Now, this particular case took place on the north part of this range here at night, and I want to move forward here. This is like co coincidentally the same time as Roswell. The craft was measured approximately 100 to 150 feet in diameter. It was extremely well illuminated. So they had floodlights on this craft. And one thing I want to mention, too, is they had people with Geiger counters. They were climbing up on the rim of the craft, and they had personnel 
with cameras and motion picture film reels going as this retrieval operation is taking place. So again, they have got the evidence according to these witnesses. Next one, UFO crash retrievals, 1947. So now we're finally getting into this Roswell timeframe. This was seen at a warehouse at Berkeley and the reference is page 197. So this lab coat technician, he's at the right place at the right time when this 18 wheeler tractor trailer low boy backs in and what he sees is this right here. This is an egg-shaped craft about 30 feet across. It's 15 feet high, and the outer hull basically looked like a cracked eggshell. Inside this eggshell, there was a three-foot diameter, you could call it orb, or it looks like a beach ball. And on the forward part of this craft, there was a composite panel separating the forward from the aft section, and then wrapped around the outer circumference of this sphere was another composite panel that definitely hugged the outer circumference of the sphere. Now, off to the right, there was a hull breach with material and what looked like fragments coming out. There was a very jagged edge. And this is, you know, 1947 time frame. My question is, it, it looks like there was a hole. You could cause it an implosion on the inside of the craft, causing this huge hull breach on the side of the craft. So m my question is, is this an entire craft itself, or is this the propulsion system for a much larger craft? We don't know. It could be either one. Next one, Carrot Patch, south of Salinas, California. This is July, August 1947, seen by two 19-year-old witnesses. This is uh, near the field. They were working the night before when this thing came down. They didn't know about it. Now, the morning after, it was the foreman that alerted the two boys that this thing actually came down. This is Leonard Springfield dictation notes. These are the original sketches that came with the notes. This thing was about nine feet in diameter, four feet tall. It had a double row of rectangular windows wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft itself. So what I wanna do now is I'm gonna take you to the map. This shows you where this thing came down. Salinas is in the upper middle section of the map here. And following the 101 down, you can see that's where the target point is, where it came down. Here is the first rendering that it came up with. It kind of had a sawed-off flat part on the top. Again, nine feet in diameter, four feet across, or four feet high. This was the first full-color SOLIDWORKS rendering that it came up with. And then this is the final sketch that Rudy uh, did. Well, well done job. So we can see... Within 15 minutes of these two 19-year-old boys who saw this craft, they actually kicked the side of it. This military convoy with an 18-wheeler tractor trailer in the back uh, pulls up. They're told to go about an eighth of a mile away, but they still saw the entire retrieval operation as they put this craft onto the trailer. They put a tarp over it, and they shipped it out. Here is the Joseph. Uh, this is my... My friend's illustration here, Joel Payne, did this one. Full-color wow. rendering shows you what it may have looked like at the scene at the time. So, again, now we've, we're looking at three, four, five different cases that they've got. Uh, now, can all these witnesses be lying? Could, could some of them be making this up? Are some of these overlap cases? Yeah, it, it's possible. But even if you knock out 19 cases and drop it down to 100, we still have 100, 100 cases and the odds are still in our favor. 
All right, so I'm going to move through Aztec real quick because I want to get back to the place we want to talk about here. Now, this is C-119 flying boxcar, Sierra Madre, California. Uh, this is Mexico area along the mountain range. This is prior to 1951. So this, I think, is about 1948 time frame. UFO crash retrievals, page 32. This was nine feet in diameter. There were two bodies recovered, and this was a construction worker. The military came up to this construction worker and asked for assistance to get this thing into the back end of this flying boxcar. And we know the size of the craft. We can gauge it. And we gauge it because the aft cargo bay of the C-119 measures 9 feet 10 inches in di uh, diameter or across. So the craft that they recovered can't be any bigger than 9 feet 6 inches. That allows you 2 inches on either side. So we know what the maximum diameter of the craft looked like. So here is the retrieval operation. This is by my good friend Rudy Gardea. And it just gives you an idea of what this may have looked like. One of these hush-hush retrieval operations, they brought into this thing, uh, then they shipped it out. And who knows where they brought it? Could have been Wrightfield, Dayton, Ohio. There's a number of repositories around the country where these craft are taken. And now this is my good friend Joseph Wraith, who did the full-color rendering. Shows you what this may have looked like during this time frame. And we'll do, go ahead and do a zoom in here. And now you can see them loading the craft into the aft bay of the C-119 flying boxcar. All right, Naval Air Station, Sunnyvale, California, 1950. This is at a place called Hangar 1. This hangar still exists today. Uh, if you know the right people, you can go inside. It's cavernous. It has its own weather. <laughs> That's how big this thing is. He was a radar operator, and this is page 57. Somehow he went through a doorway, and when he got inside, this is what it looked like inside. This was a large, about 80-foot diameter dish-shaped craft. There were a number of porthole windows wrapped around the outer circumference of the lower part of the dome. He was challenged by a guard and told to immediately vacate the area. Uh, so it was there. He saw it. Uh, we have his reference, and we provided the reference of where we got the information. Next one, classified library at an unknown U.S. Air Force base. Now, this had to do with a gentleman who was a former military officer, page 213, and he was at this materials library. He had the correct security clearances, and he pulled open this file drawer, and there was a file that basically talked about UFO crash retrieval. There were a number of photographs there, officially stamped 8x10 black and white glossy U.S. Air Force photograph of crash retrievals and reports to go along with it, and reports of bodies being recovered. So what I want to do now is I want to take you inside one of these file cabinets and show you what this may have looked like. So this is Farmington, New Mexico, prior to 1950, 36 feet in diameter. It had a small dome in the center, and uh, they had a series of porthole windows wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft. The original report talks about how they were using diamond tip drill bits to get into the craft. There was a small quarter-sized hole that they used to somehow they activated a mechanism that basically allowed this entryway hatch to be actually uh, accessible. A couple of key points here. Military officer had the correct security clearance, which gave him access to a classified materials library. Number two, report seen by witness 
made reference to crashes, so we're talking about more than one, and that bodies were recovered. In addition, diamond tip drill bits and acetylene torches were used to gain access to the interior, reference 1946 craft that we covered in the beginning, and the 1963 recovery that was seen by a Marine at an unknown location three hours from Cherry Point, North Carolina. Now, I want to make this point. Why is Farmington so important? In 1950, and this is true, there was an absolute armada of flying saucers that flew over Farmington, New Mexico. This is the Albuquerque Journal, March 18, 1950. Hundreds at Farmington report large force of flying saucers. There were 500 of these flying saucers that flew over Farmington. Uh, the leader was red in color, and witnesses, we're talking about dozens of witnesses, saw these dish-shaped craft make 90-degree riding turns. They could go backwards. They could fly forward. They could make these jig, jag motions, and it was just incredible. The flight characteristics were just phenomenal of what these things were doing. Okay, next one. During early 1950s, there was an official Air Force order that went out to pilots to shoot these things down. So this is Cincinnati Inquirer, July 29, 1952. Shoot saucers down, jet pilots so ordered in 24-hour air alert. Couple of other headlines here. Jets keeping 24-hour alert for saucers. Pilots ordered to down objects if they don't land. On the saucer trail, pilots told shoot them down. Jets on 24-hour alert to shoot down saucers. So these are the planes that were used on these scramble operations. This is the F-94 Starfire. If you go to at the Air Force Museum, they've got this craft here. And up here you can see the uh, davis Monthan plane with the doors closed. And on the bottom, you can see the nose doors open where they have the rockets. So this is what these intercepts may have looked like by our pilots trying to not only intercept, but bring these things down. These things were scrambled multiple times. These F-94s were scrambled. Now, just so you don't think I'm, I'm making this up, I want to hit you with this real quick reference. This was a letter to Stringfield by a woman named Mildred Bissell. Date is October 2nd, 1979. This is what, what she said here. I heard you speak at the MUFON Symposium in Dayton last year. I am interested in your research on retrievals of the third kind. I gave a talk at a local library last week, and in the discussion period following, a fellow told me that when he was a gunner in the Air Force, he had emptied his guns on a UFO and had taken pictures with his gun camera that clearly showed the shells exploding against the side of the craft. He said the camera was taken off the wing of his plane when it landed, and the pictures developed. At 2 a.m., a couple of military policemen came and got him out of bed and took him to the base auditorium. They ran the 17 seconds of movie of the UFO over and over and questioned him and two other crew members until 10 a.m. He was warned never to tell anyone what had happened. He said he had a wife and family, a good job, and a lot to lose. He seemed afraid of the CIA and wouldn't even give me his name. So here we've got this pilot, Air Force pilot, who, who emptied all the shells on this thing. It hit the side of the craft. He captured gun camera motion picture film of it. And then these spooks came in, pulled the, pulled the film and questioned on him. And that film disappeared into this mythical vault somewhere. They probably got dozens of these vaults 
where they have hundreds of thousands of pictures, gun camera footage, uh, things from Vietnam, things from the Gulf War, things from World War II, things from B-29 flying over the Arctic regions. They've got it. So this, this whole claim of we don't have any evidence just completely falls apart, according to their own pilots. Next one, Pentagon, 1952. This is page 152, case one by Leonard Stringfield. Now this had to do with an office worker at the Pentagon. She kind of stumbled into this room that she wasn't supposed to. So she goes into this doorway. It's dark and it's dingy, it's, it's poorly lit. I'm sure it didn't smell that great because it was at the lower level of the Pentagon. There were some boxes stacked up and she kind of made a 180 turn and what did she see? She said she saw a, quote, pickled alien in a jar, and she was stunned. She was startled. She was kind of making her way out when all of a sudden she felt this hand on her arm. It was an MP telling her to get out of there immediately. She had to sign papers to never talk about what she saw, but uh, she did relay the account to Chris Coffey, who was a contact of Leonard Stringfield. Here is a full-color rendering by my good friend Joseph Bratham, what it may have looked like in this facility. Okay, now we're gonna move forward through Kingman here, and I wanna get back to uh, Springfield. This is Camp Polk, Louisiana, summer 1953. This is a private in the Army, case A1, page 80. So what happened here is there was a number of personnel at Fort Polk who actually saw this craft came down. They saw the entire scene unfold right in front of them. And what this was was an egg-shaped craft that had a fin wrapped around the outer portion of the craft. It was 30 feet across. And what I want to do is kind of break down what took place. There were four beings that came out of this craft. One was brought out in a stretcher. These beings measured three and a half to four feet tall. They had a slight build. They walked as though they had no joint at the knees. So it was a very rigid kind of jerky movement. Three of these beings uh, come walking out of this craft and they're helped by military personnel. I don't know if they were hurt or something, but they were assisted by military personnel. And one of these beings, and they had these, you could call it face coverings and what looked like mittens. One of them was almost screaming and yelling at the one that was being carried away in the stretcher. Uh, so again, this is all part of the Leonard Stringfield UFO crash retrieval witness testimony from the book that we had talked about in the early part of the, of the presentation here. Now, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1953. This is a warrant officer. Page 15, abstract number eight. Uh, this is a really good case. I really like this one. This has to do with this warrant officer who was at the right place at the right time at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in 1953. It was about 9 p.m. at night when a four-engine DC-7 taxis onto the tarmac. Now, once it taxied into the hangar bay, the hangar doors are closed. So I want to take you to the next illustration here that shows you this complex number four. Could have been this complex. I don't know for sure, but it could have very well been this hangar complex. And uh, I've actually been in this hangar. Here's a forward view of the last bay that's hangar bay E at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Here is the DC-7. You can see they had a, a port-sized aft cargo bay that opened up. Now just picture this entire scene taking place inside this hangar with the forklift. So when the forklift 
brings down this pallet, he's unloading five wooden crates. And I'm going to take you inside the hangar now and show you what this warrant officer saw. Five crates were lowered. The upper three crates had their bins taken off, which revealed these three and a half to four foot tall humanoid or alien beings. He was about 12 feet away from the crates, a little bit closer here in the drawing. He peered over and looked inside, and they were wearing a one-piece tight-fitting flight suit. They were about three and a half feet tall, oversized head, oversized eyes, long arms down past the knees, and then something he said, two points, very interesting. Number one, all of these beings were being suspended off the bottom of the wooden crates by a netting, kind of a mesh netting, to protect their bodies from freezer burn from the dry ice below, which I thought was interesting. Number two, one was female. So we've got his testimony. Now what I want to do now is I'm going to take you to the full color rendering and show you what it may have looked like at the scene at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, he was also told and found out that they had a craft recovered. So this was an absolute full-blown UFO crash retrieval, a little bit better of a look inside now the crates with this packing here, this fabric packing that protects the bodies. This is Dunton, Montana, 1953, reference 16 page. Uh, this is 11 is the reference. Now this is a weird case, but it's part of the Springfield collection. This particular gentleman, he is driving a pickup truck down the road. There's oncoming traffic and he looks up and he sees this large cigar shaped craft that looks like it's in trouble. It has uh, tapered pointed ends on either end. And what it's doing is, and I'm gonna move forward, it's belching out balls of fire and smoke. And what's interesting is the car is going in the opposite direction. The tail uh, pipes, they were on fire. So something was going on with the localized air. It was causing uh, balls of smoke to come out of the tailpipes of these oncoming traffic. So what happened is he drives down the road another couple miles. He gets out of his truck. He goes into a bar, and he kind of files a report with the bar owner. There was an MP that also saw this. He was kind of a, a policeman. He also saw it. And uh, that very night, he got a call from the general at a local air base, and he said, I want to see you in the morning. So this gentleman drives up to the Air Force Base, and he is debriefed up from this general, and he's told to sign these NDA agreements, never to talk about what he saw. And as he's leaving, he sees these two military police with these bags over their shoulder, and one of these military police dropped this bag, and he could tell it looked like human body parts or, quote-unquote, extraterrestrial alien body parts. That's what it looked like to him. Now, he wasn't sure that there was a connection between what these guys were carrying in the sacks and this large cigar-shaped craft, but there could have been a connection. This is the Great Falls Air Force Base where he was brought, and that was later named to uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base, which has had a number of these ICBM incursions. Okay, so what we want to do now is I want to take a break and we'll move to the second part of this presentation. All right. Um, yep. <clears throat> well, then, give me a second. Sure. Uh, all right. So, um, yeah, we'll take a break, folks, and we'll be back right after this. Wow, this is really interesting stuff. It really is.
That's good. That's good. All right. So don't go away, everyone. We'll be back uh, right after this. Thanks for hanging with us at the break. <clears throat> and old man Steve was right. Kathy was getting me. Um, she's fixing a pot of chaos, and I have one right here in front of me. If you'd like your own cup of chaos, you know you can do that. Look at that. Isn't that groovy? It says, a tasty cup of chaos, the Jerry Will Show. On the other side, it says, evolve. No dogma. And you can get your own cup of chaos. Just go to jerrywillshow.com. And then we can just have a cup of chaos together sometime. Wouldn't that be groovy? Um, we are having quite an interesting dissertation by Mr. Michael Schratt. It is it's just amazing. I mean, you talk about someone who has an encyclopedic knowledge of a bunch of different cases. It isn't just knowledge, though. I mean, Michael has gone so far as to first produce pencil line drawings all the way to fully rendered full color they look like photographs really and uh, if you missed the first half of this show i feel bad for you because <laughs> you've missed out on some really amazing information and, and the the photos well they're terrific um <clears throat> we're going to continue on michael is waiting in the wings we're going to now um take a trip farther north than where I am. I'm here in uh, Arizona. We're going to go up to Maelstrom Air Force Base and um, hear more from Michael and find out what else he has to tell us. So take it away, Michael. Okay, good. Glad to be back with you, Jerry. Glad, glad good to, be to have back. you back. What I wanted to do here is I wanted to tell you that this is not an isolated incident of the cigar-shaped craft. Now, this thing was 300 feet across. If I go too forward here, I got this from the Gray Barker Collection in Clarksburg, West Virginia. This is December 7th, 1954 in Argentina. And the witnesses saw this large cigar-shaped craft, and it was belching out smoke. And on the bottom of it, there was an iris that opened up. One of the dish-shaped craft popped out, went southbound. The other one went northbound, and the other one went off to the right. So here's another one of these cases of these cigar-shaped crafts, similar time frame, with this smoke coming out of the bottom of it, like it's having a problem or it's having difficulty or something going on. So it's just not an isolated incident here. Here is our rendering of what, what this may have looked like for the Argentina case. All right, next one. Walker Air Force Base, New Mexico, April 12th, 1954. This gentleman served in the Air Force between 1954 and 1955, and the reference is UFO crash retrievals, page 82. So in this particular case, our witness was involved in training on the H-19 helicopter. And Walker Air Force Base used to be Roswell Army Airfield. So we're talking about the same place where the Roswell incident took place. This is the same 509th bomb group, but now Walker Air Force Base. So he was playing ping pong with another friend, and he was told to immediately go to the flight line. He gets in this H-19 helicopter. This is at night. They take off. They head north of Roswell, and then they make a left-hand turn. Now they're heading northwest, and when they get to a very specific 
location, something interesting happened. Now, they turned on the spotlight on this hel hel helicopter, and they open up this bay door, and you can picture this craft is now hovering over this site. It's got a beaming spotlight come down, and what he sees is this right here. He sees about a 40 to 50-foot diameter dish-shaped craft, came in at about a 40-degree angle. Now, off to the, if you look at the helicopter, he has the the side door open, he's taking photographs while all this is going on. It had an upper dome. Uh, the, the retrieval operation had already begun, and he did find out because he landed, and there are a couple of things that I want to mention. Number one, the entire localized vicinity of where this took place smelled like automobile battery acid. That's what it smelled like at the crash site. Uh, there were four bodies recovered outside the craft, and there were two found inside the craft as well. So now we've got six bodies at this crash retrieval, and they got it all on film. This has been documented. They, they've got the, uh, the evidence, not only the bodies, the craft, but motion picture film reel and still photography of this crash retrieval. Uh, the other Roswell, UFO crash on the Texas-Mexican border. Credit has to go to Noe Torres and my good friend Ruben for getting the details on this one. This is spring 1955 across the Texas-Mexican border south of Del Rio. And I want to take you here to the map. This shows you the map here. If you look at the forward, you could call it mid-upper section of the map, you've got Del Rio. And then you've got the Rio Grande River. Just south of the Rio Grande River is where this craft came down. Now, I'm going to set up the scene. There were three B-47s heading westbound, and they were being, uh, four F-86 Sabre jets were kind of flying chase with the B-47s. All of a sudden, this dish-shaped craft comes screaming by their flight path, and it kind of crashes just south of Del Rio, Texas, and the Mexican border. And this F-86 pilot, he kind of like saw all this go down. He, he followed this craft. He did a slow kind of flyby. He saw the entire uh, crash scene. He peeled off to the left, landed back in Texas. He got in with a friend of his to a two-seat tail dragger high-wing Aranka, and they flew back to the crash site. And so now you can see they, they've landed their Aranka, and they're, they're very close where this all came down. And this is what it looked like. You can see the Aranka to the forward right. You can see where this craft came in. There was various debris as this thing came to a stop. It was highly damaged. Uh, Mexican soldiers were on the scene first. And he also mentioned that the dome of this thing popped off. It was about 25 feet in diameter, five feet tall. One body was recovered. Later on, the United States military got involved. And it's important to note that when it comes to these type of UFO crash retrievals where the military, the United States military, basically steals these out from under the noses of other governments. It represents our deepest black programs. These kind of retrieval operations are really the crown jewels here. Now, next one, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, 1955. The primary witness we are identifying here as Mrs. G, and she worked in the materials division at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and this is page 17, abstract 12. And her job was extremely important. I want to take you to what it may have looked like here. And I'm going to take you inside one of these warehouses. What we want to 
kind of visualize is the closing scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You've got all these boxes and shelving and what secretly could be in these boxes. Uh, this is Warhouse Operations, uh, Warehouse Operations Building 258. And what her job was, very interesting job. Her job was to catalog a thousand components that came from the interior of a UFO crash retrieval. Just think about that, a thousand components. So I told my friend Rudy, I said, give me a large warehouse room at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and I want to have this office worker who's cataloging these components. Now, she said that as this debris came in, they were taking photographs of the debris, individual pieces, a thousand components. So they've got the evidence. Once they had it photographed, it was bagged, tagged, and it was her job to catalog this. So you can imagine off under these shelving, they have debris in plastic bags with a tag on them with a, a serial number and probably thousands of pieces of it. That's the site picture we want to look at. And here's what my friend Rudy came up with. So off to the left-hand wall, off to the right-hand shelving, you've got various debris that they have photographed. Uh, and then she said that while all this is going on, there was a dolly tray that came by on wheels, and it had two bodies that are about three and a half to four feet tall, and they were being preserved in this formaldehyde preservation fluid. And just before she died, she said, quote, Uncle Sam can't do anything to me once I'm in my grave. Six months later, after she gave her testimony, she died. So we've, we had her testimony just in time before she passed away. She dealt with this, a thousand components. So it's, it's her word against the government's word that there was no existence to that. So I, I trust this lady here. All right, so next time you hear senators and congressmen testify at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and state that they don't have any physical or visual evidence of UFOs, don't believe it. However, they may not have a high enough security clearance to access the material. So question is, who is running the show? If, if senators and congressmen aren't running the show, who is? Who's, who's tending the gold field here? Uh, I want to give you the Senator Daniel from Hawaii and give you his testimony. This is during Iran-Contra hearings, Tampa Tribune, August 4th, 1987. Uh, the hearing said anyway, produced a vision of a, quote, secret government directed principally by National Security Council staffers accountable to not a single elected official, including apparently the president himself, a shadowy government with its own Air Force, its own Navy, its own funding mechanism, fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue its own ideas of national interest free from all checks and balances and the law itself. That's exactly what we're talking about. So if you take the what he's talking about here, this intelligence community, and you link this up with the defense contractors, and then you bring in and you factor in the United States Navy and the Atomic Energy Commission, now I think we have an idea who's pulling the strings here. Next case we want to recover, uh, talk about here, comes from a retired Air Force pilot. This is an interview that took place by a gentleman named Ed Camerett Jr. This is in the late 1950s where he saw a five to six minute film clip. And what this film clip sh showed was about a 60 foot diameter dish shaped craft 
It had a 10-foot gash on the side of it, which was the upper crew compartment, apparently. had a hull bridge there. And in this film clip, he saw control panels. He saw letters or iconology written on the inside wall of the craft. There were display screens. And what you see here on the upper left is the blow-up of the what we believe is the propulsion system that ripped through this craft as it bothered in. And then off to the right-hand corner here, you've got these display screens and what look like iconology, and you could call them different symbols within these display screens. And he said that there were three bodies recovered. They were five feet tall. So we're building the case that they do have the debris and the bodies. This is the enlargement of the propulsion system and the display screens. All right, next one, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, April 1962. This was a group of transient pilots that were looking for a mobile racquetball court. So they're going down the row of hangars. They kind of bust into this one hangar, and they see this 15-foot diameter dish-shaped craft that looked like a track and field discus. It was being suspended off the floor by engine test stands, and they had a rope going around it with MPs with rifles guarding it. Uh, this is page 88, case A6, and this is the uh, 354th Tactical Air Command fighter pilot wing. That's who saw this thing. Now, the head of the fighter pilot wing, he was questioned, and he's, this guy said, you know, I don't think you're supposed to be in here. I'm going to go into the next slide here. <clears throat> the guard challenged by saying, I don't th think you're supposed to be here, sir, uh, and then you replied to the affirmative, and we turned about face and departed, mumbling to ourselves that the good old U.S. had developed or had all along flying saucers in service. So here's a case where at least five Air Force pilots, they actually saw this dish-shaped craft there. They saw the evidence with their own eyes. Multiple witnesses coming from these credible pilots. Uh, this is another reference page. Uh, this is reference number 53, who was a Navy captain, and he encountered a 30-foot diameter dish-shaped craft at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. He was a captain in the Navy and also later on a Braniff Airlines pilot. This is date 1963. He was identified as PJ. So again, these names of these witnesses were protected under the original agreement of uh, Leonard Springfield. Marine Corps Air Station, Cherry Point, North Carolina. This is kind of involved, so we'll break this down. This is December 1963, and this has to do with a Marine who was called out of bed at night. He boarded a plane with blacked-out windows. This is page 152, case A2. So he goes into this plane. They fly approximately three hours from Cherry Point, North Carolina. And I'm going to go to the next slide that shows you where this place is. It's just north of Havelock um, in Cherry Point, North Carolina. So... They land at this facility. I don't know if it's an Air Force facility, Navy facility, could be an Army place, but there was a hangar there, and these hangar doors open up. He looks inside, and when he looks inside, he sees this craft. This is about a 40-foot diameter dish-shaped craft. It looked like a fat hamburger. It was 15 feet tall. It had a polished aluminum exterior. There were elliptically shaped windows, about nine of them wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft itself. There was a one-inch lip between the outer skin of the craft itself and the outer exterior of these smoky, opaque-colored windows that you could not look inside. There was an absolutely seamless hatchway that was barely visible, just absolutely barely visible. 
And then he said, if you look here at my drawing, there were, the drawing has the red dots were, which are the attempted points of entry where they were taking a diamond tip drill bit and trying to breach the hull of the craft itself. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a comment. Subscriptions and your comments cost nothing, but it really helps us out a lot. To hear the entire interview you were just listening to, and many, many other amazing interviews within our archives, please visit jerrywillshow.com and become a member. Your membership supports our ongoing broadcasts. That's jerrywillshow.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this program.